friends welcome back uh, we are going to be starting on chapter 3 the karma yoga the um path of action today hey lu how are you i'm very good how are you today good good thanks um so karma yoga is we're going to be doing verse 1 through 7 today and basically it is the start of advice to us on how to uh achieve how to go along the path of getting to be uh, more peaceful uh, more successful happier and getting towards self realization um up to now what we've learned is some of the parts that we needed to know to get to this point now we're he's actually going to start prescribing things to us as to what to do so karma yoga is the way to get towards the self by doing action in as i explained in the last verse sorry if i'm repeating it but it bears repetition in order to become peaceful and blissful and therefore more successful you become more successful if you're at peace if your mind and intellect are at peace your mind can focus better on whatever it is that you're doing you become more productive less energy is spent on that and overall everybody that is around you including your employers and whoever is looking at your work is much more impressed with what you're able to do with far less expenditure of energy right in order to get there you've got to get yourself more peaceful you meditation is the way to get to peace but you cannot meditate when you have a lot of thoughts inside your mind constantly bombarding you and to get rid of those thoughts you've got to get rid of your desires and what we were saying before is that there are certain desires that are inherent in you that are big ones those you can't get rid of each one of us should actually focus to say which are my biggest desires that i can't get rid of right um so a person may say well i have a desire for this sense object right this one that's the hardest one for me cookies yeah i can get rid of those <laughs> i like them but you know if i could fight the desire i think that's an easy one for me to get rid of somebody else may say no cookies is my downfall <laughs> right um somebody else may say no money power wealth this is my uh, weakness whichever is the weakest one put it aside you're not going to be able to tackle that for now All right you may be lessen it we can talk about that but the ones that are easier if you snip them off you know start snipping off the smaller ones you'll get to you'll get much further ahead so verse number 1 and i should say something that i meant to bring up in the last um, uh, episode but i remember now that i meant to reminded myself to do it um that desires in fact you can't sit still this is where karma yoga comes and what in verse first the first verse arjuna says sorry if i'm getting confusing because i'm trying to think about how best to explain this right in the first verse arjuna asks krishna why he should do the um why not just meditate why do the karma his actual verse uh, words are if you consider knowledge which is sankhya yoga which was in chapter 2 superior to action 
then why do you ask me to engage in this terrible action of war? Mm. In the Gita itself, he's talking about basically um, learning to the difference between knowledge and action. Right. And to analogize that, and this is the part that I was struggling with, imagine that you're walking past a sage who's self-realized, Buddha, for instance, or Christ, who can sit under a tree, cross-legged, perfectly still for days on end. And people are coming from all over and very silently putting fruits and vegetables and food in front of him. And he's just sitting there totally quietly. And I say, wow, I could do that. I could just sit there quietly and, and be like him. And people will bring me fruits and food and uh, money and put it in front of me. But the difference is if I sat there next to him, while he's sitting perfectly still, content, at peace, and in bliss, not even bothered about everything that's in front of him, my eyes would keep opening, looking around me, and looking at all the things that need to be done. Right. Right? I would be saying, hmm, if I get a chance, I'm going to rake all those leaves <laughs> away from the tree over there because it's making a big mess. Yeah. And I'm going to clean the dust that's over there. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. This is what happens with the mind and the desires. Even if you don't have desires, the mind is constantly rajasic. It wants to do things. So the rajas is the action part of it. Sattva is the complete calmness. Tamas is laziness. So the rajas part of me keeps saying, oh, what should I be doing? And that prevents me from meditating. So I'm sitting there next to this sadhu, this sage, trying to be like him. But the difference is, externally, I might be sitting perfectly still. But internally, my mind is going nonstop and is promoting to action. Yes. So... In verse 2, he says, As though you are confusing me with your contradictory statements, therefore tell me one thing that if I were to follow, either karma or knowledge, Krishna says to, uh, Arjuna says to Krishna, mm -hmm. with an apparently perplexing speech, you confuse, as it were, my understanding. Tell me with certainty that one way with which I may attain the highest. Arjuna is a soldier. He says, Krishna, look, you're confusing me. One minute you're telling me do karma yoga. One minute you're telling me do achieve knowledge. Which one should I do? Just tell me. Just right. do this. I'm a soldier. I need that. So in this, just as a background, if I'm sitting there totally quiet next to the sage and my mind is telling me to do all these things, I will not be able to sit quietly. And that's the whole crux of this analogy that I was struggling with myself just now. That you cannot do it unless you get up and start doing action. Hmm. So Krishna's examples to him are going to tell him that you need to act before you can gain the knowledge. That's the crux of it. Mm -hmm. That you must act when you feel these things that are saying to you, you've got to act, get that out of your system. Get that out of your system, and then you can start to meditate, only then. So in this verse 2, he's saying, what should I do? Tell me first, should I do knowledge, or should I just gain knowledge, or should I do action? So what we're doing here is gaining knowledge. But in the karma, what he say later is that 
when I say act, doesn't mean that you say, okay, good, then you're telling me to go act, I should just go and eat those chocolate chip cookies that I've been craving, right. or I should just, you know, make more money, or no. What he's saying, act for the benefit of other people, not I, not me, for the benefit of other people, that sort of gets rid of your vasanas, but that will come later. Later, In verse 3, Krishna, the blessed Lord, says to Arjuna, in this world there is a twofold path, as I have said before, the path of knowledge for the Sankhya people, which are the contemplative, and the path of action for the yogis. So, first thing he says is, there's a twofold path, and we'll talk about that. He also says, as I have said before, but we just went through from chapter one and chapter two, we looked at all the verses. He hasn't said this before. Right. So what do you mean? What does he mean when he says, as I have said this before? He's now not talking as Krishna, saying, I've said it before to you, Arjuna. He is also, don't forget, he was born as Krishna, an ordinary person like all of us, just as Jesus was born, you know, as an ordinary person, then became self-realized, just like Buddha became self-realized. Once they become self-realized, when they say, I, they mean, I, the Atman, I, the Lord. They have, it's, it's hard to imagine, but imagine this huge Brahman that is infinity talking from the voice of the man that has become self-realized. Mm -hmm. And when he, the great Brahman, talks from his voice, he's saying, I have said this before meaning the Brahman has said it before, not during Krishna's lifetime, not during Arjuna's lifetime, but in the lifetime of the Brahman. So he's saying at some time before Arjuna was even born, I have said this before. What has he said before? That there's a twofold path, which is the path of knowledge and the path of action, Sankhya Yoga and Karma Yoga. But the Sankhya Yoga, the path of knowledge, is for those people who are contemplative, that have gotten rid of much of their desires. And the path of action is for those people who have a lot of desires and who are more action-oriented. So he says nishta means one path. So even though he's saying it's a two-fold path, he's talking about one path. How can one path have two folds? Hmm. That is not like a division a fork that hmm. says, I'm going this way, this way. That becomes two paths. So when he says one path, he doesn't mean like, you know, one path on top of the other. Right. He means that the earlier part of the path is karma yoga, and the latter part is um, sankhya yoga. So the earlier path you do, you do your duty, you do what is necessary to do for the community, for others. And as you keep doing that, you find that a lot of your desires just get burned because of the energy that you're expending and doing for others. Right. Hard to understand, hard to accept, but it's true. As you start doing without recognition of oneself, me, my, I, without any use for compensation in return, you're starting to burn your desires and you become more contemplative, you become more peaceful. And then the second, the latter part of the path is uh, wisdom. Then you can gain the knowledge, which becomes gives you more peace. When you, you act say, on the greater good, you become more focused on the greater good as opposed to yourself. Correct. Yeah. And just by getting away from the focus of me, I, myself, 
you're becoming less selfish and therefore you become more peaceful and your desire is less. Um, so you become less reactive as that happens and you do become more contemplative. So, okay, we did all that. Mm -hmm. So right now we are at verse four, right. chapter three, which is that the state of enlightenment is also freedom from all action. It, in Sanskrit, it's called naish karmyam, meaning no action, no karma. So we see that there are a lot of self-realized people who basically do everything. They're everywhere. How is that possible? So we cannot stop acting even for a second, as I said before, right? So it means identifying with the self, which is free from action. Actions are happening all around us, but not us. So imagine you're a lighthouse, and around you is a big hurricane storm. The lighthouse is absolutely still and solid in the middle. And that's how a person of self-realization is. He's absolutely still in the middle while there's action going on around him. So although actions are occurring from a sense of, that sense of doership is not there. This can only be accomplished when you've done the karma and you gain the knowledge. Until that time, it doesn't happen. Until that time, everything you do, you want to take credit for it yourself. You say, pat yourself on the back. You say, I did it. Right. Just by forcefully not performing actions, because some people will say, fine, then I'll just go and sit in the mountains and I'll just do nothing. There's a story of a man, true story, who went to the Himalayas and there was a small little rivulet coming down, which later becomes a big river. Next to that little rivulet, he saw a house, a thatched um, hut, and there was a sadhu in there dressed in orange clothes. And this person goes up there and starts talking to him in Hindi, broken Hindi, because he doesn't speak too well. And the person inside the hut says, are you more comfortable speaking in English? And he says, oh my God, you speak English? He says, fluently. Why? He says, well, I thought that if you're sitting by this rivulet in this hut, that you're probably not well-versed in English. He said, no, no, I went to universities, I was abroad, I lived in America, I lived in England and came back here because I thought this is what I need to practice. And he said, well, how's it going for you? True story. And he said, I'm not happy. I'm thinking of coming back. So he said, what did you do? He says, I just gave up everything. I had all money, power, fame, everything. And I said, I need to get back to my roots. And so he says, I gave up everything and I came and I dressed in orange clothes and talked to some sadhus and I decided I was going to give it. He says, but I'm not happy at all. I'm thinking of coming back. So by not performing action, by pretending that you're not doing it, right. you cannot achieve Nashkarma. That's just a, you're just pretending. You, you can't, if you want to be a surgeon, you can't just say, okay, well, I'm going to the store and I'm buying myself a surgeon's outfit and a mask and a scalpel and I can be a surgeon. You've got to know what you're doing. Right. You cannot become self-realized by just dropping all action or saying that I renounce everything. Um, you can't sit still, like I said before, because your mind keeps acting. You've got to do something that makes that go away. So 
Um, some people do not have a problem with certain sense organs and sense objects. They have a problem with, say, desire for their children or uh, grandchildren, family. Other people have um, desire for fame, for reputation, for power. All of this comes down from what is known as prakriti. Prakriti is what I was saying before in our previous episode. This is for generations and lifetimes what has come within us. And that prakriti brings out the biggest vasanas inside us. And so that is something that we need to watch out for. Ones we've carried forward through other lives. Through other lives, yeah. and we are adding to them. So verse 5, chapter 3 says, none can ever remain inactive even for a moment. All of us are made to act helplessly, indeed, by the qualities born of prakriti, by gunas. So as long as you have vasanas, you all have to act. The desires within us will force us to act. You have to learn to stifle your tamas and encourage your sattva. So the, we talked about this before. Uh, and I'll just touch on it, that tamas is laziness, indolence. Sattva is where you go beyond action to complete peace within yourself, your economist. And rajas is wanting to do all the time. So the period of time where sattva manifests itself the most is from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. If you look from a medical standpoint, that's when a lot of endorphins are secreted, hormones are secreted, that people say, well, you know, that's why it's good necessary to eat breakfast at that time, because that's when those hormones are secreted. Starting, and I can tell you that after studying with uh, Gautam Jain, he kept emphasizing, you have to wake up. In the beginning, it was difficult, but I, now I love it. I wake up at four o'clock, from four to six, I'm actually so happy studying. But as he said, you can only do this for an hour or two, maximum. Mm -hmm. By 6 o'clock, as I start to see the sun starting to rise, my mind starts thinking about what I need to do. I can tell within myself that rajas is activating itself within my body. Right. And in the ashram, where Swami Parthasarthi conducts his courses, by that time is when they say, okay, go to the gym, do your jogging. So they say study first during sattvic period, four to six, and then when the rajas period starts, start to do exercise, then at least you've got those two things out. And then you do to spend the rest of the time doing karma yoga, doing for others. And then when the evening comes, you do studies, which are hymns, singing, bhakti, which is devotion, and then go to sleep early. Mm -hmm. What this verse says is, you're all made of prakriti, and the best thing for you to do is to cut down on your tamasic time. So if you stay awake till midnight, 1 o'clock, yeah. you're going to give yourself 6 hours or 7 hours of tamasic time. The tendency at that time is to do things that you don't want to do, which is only adds to your tamasic nature, your desires. Right. Watching TV, uh, drinking alcohol, uh, sleeping, lazing, stuff like that. It says instead, go to bed early, have a good night's sleep, wake up at four, contemplate, meditate, and then start your day at that point. So that's basically what verse five says. Verse six says, 
he who, restraining the organs of action, sits mentally indulging in the same sense objects, he of deluded understanding is called a hypocrite. Mm. So we know this. What he's saying is, if you just restrain your organs of action, specifically he's talking about the genitals, the sexual organs, mm -hmm. but all organs of action, but mentally you're indulging in those sense objects, thinking about them, wishing for them, desiring them, you're of deluded understanding. He calls, right. he says, you're a massive fool, is what he really says. And you're called a hypocrite. So we know that there are many people in various clergies that say, I renounce everything. I have, I'm a bachelor, I'm this, and then they get into other kinds of trouble. Right. So if you control your sense organs by saying, I'm not going to allow them, but mentally you keep indulging in that, you're just being a hypocrite is what he's saying. Right. As long as the vasanas exist, they forcibly express themselves as thoughts and desires, and ultimately they will get you in trouble. So he's saying don't do that. In the Hindu tradition, by the way, a lot of priests are married. They are allowed to marry, to have a family, to have, a, have children, um, and live natural lives, live natural lives, lead natural lives. But what they're encouraged to do is to not keep indulging mentally into these desires as they fulfill their family life. And that's the way not to say, okay, listen, I'm, I'm going to refrain from this. There are certain other sages who are called brahmacharis who don't get married and be, stay single, and they're at a higher level because they can control their desires for that. Right. Okay, so... He who restrains the senses by the mind, O Arjuna, engages his organs of action in the yoga of action without attachment. He excels. That's number seven. So in verse four, he said, you have to act. You cannot do without action. In verse five, he says, none can remain inactive even for a minute. You're all made to act. But if you act with the mental indulgence, here's a very important thing to understand for everybody. If you act with mental indulgence, you're increasing your desires. Very important thing to note. Right. What he is saying is the physical act of indulgence in your sense objects is not what's causing you to gain your, increase your desires. The physical act isn't. It's the mental act of indulgence along with the physical that causes you to increase your desires. So. Think of your, a sense organ that you think you have a weakness for, right? Once you have that in mind, you think of yourself engaging that sense organ into doing whatever it needs to do to gain the pleasure with an interaction with a sense object. While that engagement is taking place between the sense organ and the sense object, if the mind is saying this is all for a higher purpose, I've got to do this. I have to eat to survive. This is all for a higher purpose. All of this is going above. Then you're not, not increasing your desires. But while you're doing it, if your mind is saying, oh, my God, this is fantastic, the, I need, it increases your desire. So that's a key to keep in mind. This is a very important. It's not the physical action or inaction, or inaction that increases desires. It is the 
What increases the desires is the mental indulgence. Mm. So mental lingering, again, even after the physical indulgence takes place, if the mind keeps lingering on whatever it was, you went to a meal and you said, oh, my God, that meal was so fantastic. That Chinese food, I love that restaurant. You start telling everybody about it. Each time you speak about it, indulge in it mentally, it's going to increase your desire. So he's saying don't allow that mental indulgence. Enjoy, engage his organs of action in the yoga of action without attachment. So he's calling it attachment. Without attachment, he says you can enjoy, engage your organs of action in the yoga of action, but without attachment. Right. Um, so get away from as many desires as you can. Those that you absolutely cannot get away from, those that are yours from previous lives, those are the biggest ones, do not engage mentally or linger. Um, so in India, when I was growing up, we were taught that when you have a plate of food in front of you, you take a little bit before you put anything in your mouth. We ate with our hands. You wash your hand, right hand, and then you eat with your hand. But they also said your place where you kept your food was clean, neat. Everybody around you was, you know, you don't fool around. You don't yap and you don't do certain things. You follow certain things. Right. But the first thing to do is to offer this food, which is not for you, but for Brahman, take a little piece of the rice, put it on the side of your plate, say a prayer, take a little bit of the vegetables, put it around your plate, all in a circle around the plate, and then offer it to the higher power, to Brahman, to the self, and say, this is for you. So as you're eating it, you're trying to minimize your indulgence, the mental indulgence in the pleasure of eating for yourself. So right. you're not saying it's for me, it's for I. I got so much pleasure out of it, even though it's delicious. As we said in Chapter 2, you're not indulging in this pleasure, but saying it's for a higher power. You're giving it away. And when you do that, your desires lessen. So I hope I have not made it too much more confusing for you. <laughs> These things can get a little confusing, and I apologize if my part in that made it worse. But thank you so much for listening, and thank you, Lou, for your support, and uh, I hope to see you again next time. All right. If you're listening to our audio-only podcast, head on over to the Facebook page, The Gita Memoirs, and uh, find the video podcast and interact with us. Leave a note, leave a message, uh, talk to us, and we can have a discussion about this. Thank you so much.